You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof flew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get rolling here today, let's hear from our sponsor. Bear Vault has the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry this season. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. Proper food storage is one key to an epic trip in the backcountry. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash bear vault to check out this must-have solution for the outdoors now. You support this podcast and your safety this season by clicking through that link right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Chota Outdoor, legendary comfort and equipment you can trust. Chota insists on the finest materials and craftsmanship you can assure you have the highest standards of quality. You'll feel in control of the elements in your Chota gear. Every product is solidly backed with a no-nonsense warranty against defects. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Chota right now. That's Chota, C-H-O-T-A, to support this podcast and the Chota Outdoor family right now. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Alice? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for putting a little time uh, together on a weekend to put this together. I know it sounds like you have a lot going on, and so thanks for taking the time here. We're going to talk about you're in one of those places that comes up all the time, you know, whether that's talking to somebody like, you know, Kelly Gallup and streamer fishing or, you know, whoever it is, the Madison, you know, talking about traffic on the river. Seems like it's one of the hottest places in the country. So I want to talk about that, maybe some tips for people that are heading out there. But let me just start off saying we're not going to go deep into your background. I think you've been on a number of podcasts. We'll put some links to the Fly Fishing Insider podcast and some other ones you've done where they can hear more of your background. I know, I know you got started when you were eight, really young and all that stuff. So uh, maybe just give us any highlights along the way as we jump into this on your background that you want to highlight before we jump into some technical stuff. Sure. You know, I was in college and had the intention of being a forest entomologist. That's what I was headed to do in college and was fly fishing for fun on the side. And I was minoring in outdoor leadership because of interests that I had for previous jobs, working at summer camps and spending time outside and doing things. And after one summer of working in Oregon and experiencing kind of where I thought I was going to go to graduate school, I really enjoyed the work, but what I missed was the being outside part. Um, working on a microscope was just not the highlight. So I was fishing on the weekends, camping, doing a little climbing, and just said, huh, what are my other options? And I spent a whole week driving across Montana 
experienced the at the time the uh, Federation of Fly Fishers Conclave in Livingston, and it really uh, that and meeting a bunch of fishing guides in the area opened my eyes to the whole prospect of the fly fishing industry and that there was something there. So I saw that people were air quotes making a living working in the fly fishing industry, and I thought, okay, let's see what that has to offer. What do I do next? And they said, get a job at your local fly shop, and. I also connected with the International Women Fly Fishers. That was the year of the very first gathering, the festival that was going to be in San Francisco and got to meet some amazing women and just kind of looked around and went, whoa, these are my people, women in fly fishing. You know, what do I need to do? How do I, how do I do something here? And so that was really kind of the launching pad for me, that experience that summer and making that little transition in college. I still majored in forestry and graduated and continued all of those studies until graduation, but really had my sights set on moving out West at some point and being in the fishing industry and being surrounded by fly fishing opportunities. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And I know some of those people we've had on the podcast, Ann Murphy, I know is a big, uh, I think she's part of that, right? Getting that whole thing started. And I think, in fact, I think I connected to you through another, um, I think it was might have been Jerry Meyer. I always sometimes I forget, but uh, but I think there's been a number of people that have recommended you for the show, and so this is good. You mentioned Oregon. Where were you fishing when you were in college? Where, where were you? Uh, what were the water? Were you fishing Stillwater rivers? What were you doing there? Well, I went to college in Asheville, North Carolina. Shout out to Warren Wilson College, but that was fishing Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee. But the summer in Oregon was in Corvallis, and I fished the Willamette. I fished. Um, Let's see, some small streams down off the Mackenzie. I fished the Umpqua, which was a hilarious uh, experience. The Umpqua or the North Umpqua? Was this like Steelhead? Yeah, I was on. The, it was just one summer, so I was on the North Umpqua. Yeah, and pretty sure I might have hooked into a Steelhead one night when I thought I was trout fishing because I had no idea. Oh wow! <laughs> I was inexperienced in all of that. Had no clue what I was doing, and hooked into something massive that broke me off, and I went. Oh, I wonder what that was. And later on, somebody was like, duh, you were fishing the North Umpqua. That was probably a steelhead. That was a steelhead for sure. Yep. Um, and then I did a lot of stillwater fishing also. There was a local fly fishing club and that was their summer of outings. And somebody lent me a float tube and I got to fish Crane Prairie. Oh, nice. And I'm um, trying to think, is there another, there's a couple other reservoirs yeah. that we camped on and fished and learned all about that. I was into anything. You know, fly fishing. If the I met with the local fly tires, the Knights of the Round Table on Wednesday hmm. night, and if they said this is what we're doing on the weekend, and it involved fly fishing, whether we were in canoes or float tubes or walk wading or hiking in somewhere, I was in. And I wanted to get out and experience all the fishing opportunities that I could. Wow, love that. And when did you know? I think the guiding is something we've talked about over the years. Just with you know, it feels like there's some people that just know they're, they're just meant for guiding. Did you know right away when you started guiding, you know, that guiding was your thing? Well, previous to the kind of connection in the fishing industry, I'd been working at summer camps and was uh, doing different outdoor activities with groups of gals. So I was, we had a girls ranger program and we were hiking and climbing and caving and uh, whitewater rafting and canoeing and kayaking and mountain biking and all these things. So they're that kind of guiding, leading groups part, I had already experienced that. And then, as you mentioned, Lorianne Murphy and Patty Riley had been hired by Frank Smith to come to Hunter Banks Company with a fly shop I was working at in North Carolina to teach their women's fly fishing school. 
And then I also connected with different reps when they were teaching a casting school with Orvis or Sage or someone else, I would go help. And so that teaching aspect of teaching and coaching fly fishing was of huge interest to me. And I think that was in my mind, a progression to guiding fly fishing. And I think the being outside part was an enormous attraction for me. Yeah. You love that. And do you still, is that still, you love just try to get outdoors as much as possible? Uh, yes, <laughs> no, I am. I am, as you mentioned, uh, it's the middle of my busy season. I'm guiding every day. And if I'm not guiding most days, I'm outside trying to go fishing on my own. Yeah, that's, that's it. And what is it like? Cause we've heard, you know, with the, the Madison comes up a lot and we talk about the other rivers that you guide on there, but you know, about how busy they are. And I know that's a common, you know, concern for people. They're out there and they come to the boat ramp and there's 30 boats lined up. What's your, what's the step? Like, I mean, we're going to talk guiding too, but if somebody's just coming there trying to do a DIY thing, say on the Madison, one of these busy rivers, give us a tip there. What do you tell somebody to have a successful day? Well, reality is the Madison is the most fished river in Montana. Hmm. And obviously there's a natural attraction to the West Yellowstone area because we have phenomenal fly fishing in every direction around town. Any road leaving West Yellowstone is going to fishing. So people are going to be fishing in this area. There's been an increase in the population in Southwest Montana. And with that comes more boats. And on the Madison, as soon as I you know, pull into the the little road going to a boat ramp. I always can just sense that with my guests in the truck and they go, wow. And they <laughs> say, look at all these boats. Or somebody says, oh my goodness. Or every once in a while I get, wow, I thought it would be busier, which is, <laughs> nice. I appreciate that one too. Right. But you know, I always remind folks, listen, yeah, it looks like a lot of boats right here. Not everyone is going the same place. Not everyone is going at the same pace. And so some of our boat ramps, um, and this has been a challenge with the previous conversations that the state has had about trying to regulate traffic on the Madison, is that one boat ramp, everybody taking putting in right there could be doing a different length float for the day. And some folks are going long, some people are going short, some people are going right down the middle of the valley to take out. They're just doing kind of a standard eight mile float. So don't assume everybody's going the same place you are. And I think it involves patience. You know, we're all, um, as it's been said more than once, you know, not everybody out on the river is your adversary. We're all, all out there together. Yeah. And sometimes you have to wait a few minutes before you pull up your anchor, let the traffic go by. Then when it's your turn, pull out and start floating the river. I noticed the other day, four boats were fishing a completely different way that I was fishing. Hmm. I mean, we're all fly fishing, but they were just fishing different water, different technique. And I just let the four boats go by. And as soon as they were gone, I knew they were going to have lunch together downstream. We weren't going to be getting in, in each other's way. And so it's kind of paying attention to what's going on around you. You know, take a sip of water, put on some sunscreen, let a little traffic go by, then pull up your anchor when it's clear to go. And if you can keep your pace and it's not be getting in the way of everyone else and you're not they're not in your way i think we can all get along out there yeah that's it and then and we'll probably talk about this a little bit too is the in the park and maybe some of the walk and wade stuff but there's chances there probably to just hike further right get away from people is that the especially you're in a national park but is that always the tip just to hike a little bit further you can get find some uh you know clear water yes frequently 
you know, there's a statistic out there about what percentage of visitors to Yellowstone National Park don't get a mile away from their car. And we know what those really congested areas in the park are, the bucket list visitation spots with the falls, upper and lower Yellowstone Falls, Old Faithful, Grand Prismatic, all those spots. Um, and then it's 2.2 million acres. There's an enormous national park there that has a lot of water in it. So yes, you can get away from the road, get a little farther out, be willing to walk a little bit, maybe give somebody a hole, you know, or two ahead of them, let them have the whole run and just, you know, maybe you have a conversation with them. And that's really the best thing is a little communication and say, Hey, good morning. How's it going? Oh, it's great. How are you? Oh, Hey, I'm only going to fish this run. And then I got to go meet the family for brunch, you know, cool. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Or I'll say to somebody, Hey, how's it going? Great. So we're going to fish up to that log and then I'm going to buzz out of here. We're going to go try a different waterway because these guys are trying to catch as many species as they can in a day. We're on the move. You know, that conversation can be really helpful with a member of the public or a fishing guide or somebody else out there so that you can give each other space and everybody can enjoy themselves. Um, there's no need for adversarial conversations and some of the, the negativity no. that's gone on. Um, that we've all heard about and I've yeah. experienced a little bit of, it's completely unnecessary. Yeah, no, I love that. That is a great tip. Yeah. Instead of coming up there and being like, oh man, I got to battle this person. You should like just introduce yourself and say, Hey, how's it going? And then now you've actually, you can figure out a plan and make sure you don't, you know, uh, fish over each other's water, right? That's pretty simple. That's awesome. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I was recently on a backcountry trip with another fishing guide. There's a group of us. We had three clients, two fishing guides and I saw these other anglers and I thought, oh man, they're going to be cringing because they just saw two fishing guides, right? And they brought clients in and these guys are going to be all territorial. And they stayed and fished there they were. We were totally happy fishing where we were. We fished near each other and fished away. We walked and covered water. At the end of the day, they walked right past us. Turns out I knew the guy and he's been in the area for years and knows plenty of fishing guides. And he was like, no, I'm happy that you were out here and this is awesome. And you guys had such a great day. It was such good there fishing go. today. I'm really glad these people experienced it. So there was no, no adversarial, you know, need, but I had that feeling a little bit just because I've experienced that in the past of having people go fishing guides. It's like, Hey, wait a second. I'm actually teaching my people to be responsible yep. and I'm educating them about the resource. I'm teaching them how to manage themselves in the backcountry. I'm teaching them how to treat the fish properly. And I'm also going to try to show an example of how to communicate with another angler. So thankfully that went in a positive direction. Right, right. This is good. Yeah. I think the guy thing is interesting because it definitely, you know, you hear those stories, right? And that's what it is. I think it's just miscommunication. People feel like instead of talking to them, you know, there's this guide, you know, the guides are bringing more people on the river, they're ruining the river, but actually they're teaching, like you said, you're teaching people how to be respectful and etiquette and all that stuff, which is way better than somebody just coming on the river on their own, not knowing anything and, you know, fishing right over your water, right? And so that's the thing. Do you see when, the, you know, you're out there guiding, like say the mass in one of those busy days with the drift boats, is it kind of a 50-50 guides and people doing their own thing DIY or what's that look like? It is not 50-50. I would say... There are days where there are more fishing guides than members of the public. And then we've started to notice, obviously, around holidays and certain days of the week, I feel there are days where there's way more members of the public sometimes than there are fishing guides. And it's not all 
rafts and drift boats and people fly fishing either as far as members of the public i mean i include every person who's in a watercraft so uh we don't have the madison is a tricky river especially in the top part of it it's a little more technical there's rocks there's logs there's quite a bit of elevation loss so it's moving pretty quick you got to be on your game a little bit if you're going to try to slow your boat down for fishing and or in some places just be responsible but the um Members of the public can be in kayaks and any number of things. It's not a place that we're going to see a lot of of the like inner tubes and paddle boards and all that. Right, splash and giggle. Yeah, yeah that does not happen in the Upper Madison, uh, which is it's safer because of that. And I paddleboard, mm. and I have gone on rivers on my paddleboard, and I have thought long and hard about whether I wanted to ever float that section on my paddleboard, and it's like, mm, I don't think so. Just because of... Tricky. Just, yeah. I'm not sure that it's any sort of class of whitewater, but it's pushing it. Yeah. It's there. Gotcha. So uh, there are times definitely where we look around and go, huh, there's a lot of members of the public today putting in. And... Some of them have been fishing forever. Some are retired fishing guides. Some are people who live in the area who float a lot, who have their own boat and have other jobs. And some are brand new to the state and just heard the Madison's an awesome river and they wanted to come check it out. And my advice to them is to do a little scouting, take a step back, don't be in a huge hurry, wait and see what's going on, make a plan, you know, be safe like you would be in any new other piece of water. We don't have big rapids that you need to get out and scout, but it's worth standing at the bridge at Lions Bridge and looking up and downstream and getting an idea of what type of water you're going to be floating. Look and see where the other boats are and kind of what folks are doing. You know, that's helpful. Yeah, perfect. Well, let's dig in on the Madison a little bit. Um, you know, thinking, let's say somebody's either thinking about doing a trip, maybe they're coming even to that area. I mean, w- the first of all, let's just start at the top. The Madison, you know, why is it the busiest? Did you just, you kind of said it's just that there are a lot of people coming there. It's known. What what do you think, you know, why is it the Madison is the one and not the, you know, the Big Hole, the Big Horn, the Beaver, any of the other famous Montana? What is it? Is it just because of Kelly Gallup? <laughs> is that the thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, newsflash for all. Kelly, you arrived onto the Madison and it was not the first place that you fished or guided or fished streamers. The Madison was here before he got here. Right. Some of us were guiding on it before Kelly got here. Um, the Madison is well known because we have a consistent water temperature because we have the dam. So it's not a tailwater though. It's a dammed river that acts like a freestone. Hmm. And it was a freestone river before Hebgen Dam was put in in 1914. And it continues to be a freestone river. And we've had some significant geologic events that I think have also helped that with Earthquake Lake. So it's an amazing river in that we have consistent water temperature somewhat through the summer. And we've had our experiences with highs and lows, but they can control that a little bit more, especially the upper part. It has some cold water springs coming in in a number of locations up and down the Madison Valley, and it has a variety of types of water. So we have, you know, it's called the 50-mile riffle, but you also have large boulders, you have long runs, you have log jams, then you have areas where it's braided and you have islands and slower water in some spots. So I think the variety, I think the... You have rainbows and brown trout. I think the season that it can be fished is also attractive to folks. And 
for some folks, it I think the water temperature makes it a little bit more reliable fishing destination because you know there's a chance at some point during the day that you're going to have some good fishing. You know, certain times of the year that might be the middle of the summer, the day. Sometimes of the year it's the beginning and the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. So that's one of those things you could. There's a lot of times of the year you can fish it, and it sounds like it's easily accessible. I mean, are people you know, there's drift boats, the main way people are getting out their boats or people also walking, waiting all over the place. There's a lot of walkway access on the, on the Madison river. The stretch above lion's bridge is designated walkway fishing only. So there's no fishing out of a boat. And then the section from lion's bridge downstream to the Ennis bridge, you can use a boat to access that water because it goes through a little bit more private land. And then from Ennis Bridge down to Ennis Lake, you're back to walkway fishing only. So it has a great variety. There are walkway accesses also in the float stretch and plenty of spots where you could arrive at a boat ramp and go walk down the stream and get plenty of fishing in um, during certain times of the day when there may be more or less boats through there. So I think there's a good variety and... You can walk to get to fishing. So you could spend all day hiking, walking, and fishing if you wanted and go from one point to the next. Or you can strictly walk out, fish a run, fish a hole right below a big boulder, fish a couple of those, and then walk back to your car. So there's a lot of accessibility on the Madison. Some generous landowners certainly are allowing some easements that allow people to access the river. Right. And is it Montana that has the law, the access law, where it's up to the ordinary high water, you can walk in the river? Yes. Yeah, we have, a, in my opinion, enviable stream access loft to some other states. And that, yes, it's the ordinary high water mark. And that is generally defined as the first permanent vegetation. And grass is not a permanent vegetation. So you can see where the water has been. And we've had some significant events in the last few years, including the flood last summer, yeah. that showed us where that high water mark is. You know, and that's, that is your access into the river. So if you can use a public access site to get to the river, as long as you stay below that high water mark, you can move up and downstream in that corridor. Yeah, that's great. And it's such an amazing, you know, law because I think like Colorado and there's lots of states that are, I think they're, you know, it's, it's not legal and there's struggles and people are trying to get it there. But I think it mainly happened in Montana because there wasn't a lot of people there is my guess. And now you know, it doesn't matter, right? It's a law, right? It's sticking. Is that, you think that will ever change? Oh, I hope not. Um, I certainly appreciate it for my own fishing and for guiding. And there is a lot of effort to continue to support that law. And I feel like there are challenges to it fairly often on small rivers in the state, sometimes on larger rivers where somebody assumes that a bridge might be private or they would like to see that the public can't access the river in one direction or the other from a public access site. So it gets challenged. And there are some who've moved here that would like to see Montana go back to previous stream access laws um, in order to protect their own property. And I really continue to support efforts to support our current stream access law and make that stronger and hope that it continues. Perfect. Well, so we're, th- we're on the Madison now and we're, we're looking at this. So we've got, it sounds like there's a lot of access in there. Um, what is, you know, your type of fishing? I know, like we mentioned Kelly Gallup, we've talked streamers, you know, his name comes up a lot there, but you know, we've also done an episode with Kelly on dry flies. I mean, there's 
a lot of different ways to fish it. Do you find yourself throughout the year asking your clients, how do you want to fish and you can do anything or do you have specific times of the year you really focus on, you know, techniques? I definitely focused on techniques. I probably spend quite a bit of time teaching whether we are fishing nymphs, fishing streamers or fishing dry flies, but the water temperatures on the Madison support fantastic bug population. And I think we have some great insect hatches. So I tend to fish dry flies as much as I can. And especially, you know, even with folks that are new anglers, I'm going to try to teach them as much as I can on how to manage their line, a reach cast, the water we're looking for, how we're going to get the fly where it needs to be, what kind of drift we're looking for. All of that. I mean, I will gladly try to teach a brand new beginner how to do that because I feel like it's a great opportunity. The Madison is a good fishery for that. And that's my job. That's where they hired me as a fishing guide. So I try to fish dry flies as much as I can. We know that fish eat a significant portion of their diet underwater. So there's certainly some nymphing that goes on. I'm not going to say I don't, but if I can fish dry flies, I'm going to try to. And that's going to just put me in a little bit different water sometimes than some of the folks that are fishing nymphs. And then streamer fishing, Sure. When the water conditions are warranting that or a lack of bug hatches or a time of year, I'm not opposed to throwing streamers. Streamers. Yeah. And, uh, and wet flies, any, is that ever part of the, uh, you know, the, the, am the I on the wet fly swing podcast? <laughs> I are like we talking to, about swing and wet flies? I like to throw that out there every <laughs> once in a while, just because it's a, it's a good check, you know, I, <laughs> But uh, it's such a, you know, it's interesting because the wet fly is such a, you know, it's always been like, it's the old school, right? It's the old school, like who's doing wet flies, you know, Davey Watton, of course, we've talked to about, and that's not even swinging, like he's got his own style. And I just talked to Rick Kafley, who's an entomologist, and he talked mm-hmm. about some flimps and other wet flies and things that he uses, right? And I, and I obviously came up with this brand based on a little bit of a throwback, you know, I wanted to kind of just give that shout out, but yeah, what's your take? Why are wet flies not part of most um, guides program? Well, they are part of my program. Oh, nice. And the only reason I didn't mention it is because I felt like our conversation was mostly talking about floating the Madison Mm. and it's swinging wet flies is not something that I do out of the boat, not saying it can't be done, but it's not something we do out of the boat unless I'm using the boat for transportation to go from spot to spot. So I do swing wet flies and my introduction with clients, especially if I have brand new beginners, I feel like getting them swinging wet flies can be a great way to work on their casting and their line management. And we don't have all the stuff on the line with the nymph rig that they're going to get constantly tangled and frustrated. And dry fly fishing, maybe the first couple, this is if we're waiting, not in the boat. Um, the first few drifts on a dry fly, trying to explain it all to them. And then hopefully a fish eats it and then they miss them and then they don't understand what they missed. And so that can be a little frustrating. I think if in the very beginning, if I have the opportunity for swinging wet flies, that's a great way to get somebody into fly fishing yep. and they can learn quite a bit. Um, taking that on, it's also a great transition to dry flies. And so I tell them, listen, early on it was dry flies and wet flies. And I try to explain to them a quick history there. But that translates phenomenally into trout spay. And we're going to be swinging soft tackles with the trout spay rod in some places, or we might be swinging small streamers. So still fishing a wet fly yep, and still swinging it, just starting to change and add to that technique using a different tool. Yep. And I love that you mentioned trout spay because that seems like something that the spay, I mean, I 
kind of steelhead is something that, you know, we talk a lot about, but yeah, I mean, the trout space seems to be something that's growing just because it's a new, right? The spay is a new thing and it's fun. Are you into the spay game? Is that something that you're uh, kind of thinking about? I am now. Um, I grew up in the Midwest and certainly steelhead fished in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan when I was younger with my dad as something we went and did in the fall. And then moving out West, my boyfriend at the time, now husband, who also grew up in Michigan, he um, is into steelhead fishing on the Pacific side. So he got into spay casting and then also wanted me to get into it. And naturally, he was teaching me how to spay cast here in anticipation of a steelhead trip. And we put on a wet fly so that why not be fishing while you're practicing your spay casting? And at the time, I was using a seven weight, which is gigantic right. compared to the trout that are I'm fishing to around here. So I love that trout spay rods now exist and that a two weight or a three weight trout spay rod is perfect for the trout in this area. So I do trout spay. It's not limited to the fall, which is typically an attractive time for folks to be here doing that. And I feel like with all the different insects that can be emerging, we are imitating those emerging insects with that soft tackle and can cover a lot of water and it can be a very effective way of catching fish. Quick break for a word from our sponsor. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee Team roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you are doing your part. Roasted and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness. For me, it's all about that freshness and taste when I crack open a bag of anglers in the morning. I feel good because I know not only does it taste great, but I am supporting great movements along the way. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go tea bag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Anglers is serving your needs. It's time to step up to better coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes we love. You can head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to grab a bag of greatness today. That's anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S, to make a change today. In Ohio, we're heading back there. We do our like steelhead school kind of east over there with Jeff Liskey and, and Rick Custich this year. Um, where'd you uh, steelhead fish when you're out in Ohio? or when you're there in the Great Lakes? Well, those are some big secrets that you're asking, Dave. No, <laughs> those guys, those guys steelhead fish in all those spots. Um, you know, most of ours was actually in, um, some in Pennsylvania and then some up in Michigan. Uh, more recently, when I was back in Ohio, I did steelhead fish, and I'm just drawing a complete blank. But it's the same. It's all off of Lake Erie. It's all of those small streams that go into Lake Erie. Okay, yeah, it's all the yeah. All the small stuff, Chagrin River yeah. out. Yeah, we're, we're heading up with the Chagrin River Outfitters and stuff. And hitting it's all the, the places that Jeff It's all those. Yeah, Rick. it's the same stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we're hitting the Cataragus, which is cool with Rick this year because I we haven't been there yet. So that's going to be fun. But yeah. no, I love this. So we talked wet flies. Let's, I want to just nymphs. You know, another topic that comes up a lot is the Euro nymphing. And I'm curious on your nymphing style because we hear a lot about Euro. But what is that? Talk us there. Let's say we're on the boat and what sort of nymphing. Talk about your setup, how you do it out there. Um, Montana only allows two flies, so we can only have two flies on the line. I'm going to have those two flies rigged up with split shot above and then a strike indicator on the top. And I use the AOS strike indicators, the medium size and sometimes two small ones. But I am 
going to tie those two flies on depending on the season or the time of the summer, I may have big and little, what I would refer to like with a stone fly on top with a small fly down below, or as we get away from those stone fly hatches and bigger hatches, then I'm going to have two little flies on there. And most of the time it's imitating what I know or think is happening. I mean, I know there's bugs in the river year round, but if say the yellow sallies are hatching or going to hatch, or it's a more prolific bug that's moving in the water column at that time, I'm going to fish that or PMD. Caddis are throughout the river system on the Madison. And I feel like that's can also be a reliable insect throughout the year, but I'm going to pay attention to those bug hatches as to what nymphs I'm going to have on. So if I have two little nymphs on, especially that top nymph, I like to tie both tippets off of the eye. So I tie on that small nymph and then I tie the tag off of that for the second fly, I'm going to tie that off the eye. And I know some people like to tie it in line and they'll tie it off the bend of the nymph, but I'm going to tie it off the eye because I feel like there's one less thing impeding a fish eating that fly, but it also is going to maybe be in the water column a little more naturally than if it's tied directly in line. And that's, I mean, there's a subject right there. You could have six fishing guides sitting around the table and we could debate that all night long about what we're doing and what's better and what's more effective. Right. Yeah. Tying off the bend of the hook versus tying off the eye versus even putting like a dropper off the leader, right? Higher up or something like that. Right. Yeah. So tying a tag off of that and then putting two flies off the tag. Yeah. Um, yes. So, or tying one fly off the tag and one as the lower fly for sure. But I'm always trying to get those flies to look, in my opinion, as natural as possible. I'm looking for them to be in the water column, drifting along like they have are either you know moving from one substrate to another or have been knocked loose off of a substrate and then they're floating downstream. Yeah. Because that's what I see. You know, I'm occasionally walking the boat, certainly doing some walk wading, and you know, I'm standing in the water and then I see a nymph go by. It's like, well, that guy's cruising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's not really swimming. But instead, he's been knocked off of something, and now he's floating downstream, and he is vulnerable. Yeah, and you're doing that out of the out of the boat, nymphing. Talk about that. If somebody, if you're floating, is that you know, what's your setup look like from the boat versus say fishing from the bank? Um, two anglers in the boat, one in the bow, one in the stern. I'm frequently rowing and slowing the boat down to the current speed, or slightly slower if I can in certain spots. I may jump out and walk the boat. And I'll still have both fish, both anglers fishing at the same time if we're doing that, depending on where we are. Sometimes it's more conducive to having one angler fish at a time. Um, the Madison is okay for anchoring the boat and fishing out of the boat in some spots, you know, with all three anglers in the boat, but it can be dangerous to do that. That's not necessarily ideal. And certainly at certain water conditions, I would never put my anchor down in fast water and be trying to, to fish out of the boat just because we're starting to swing. And that's dangerous for getting the anchor hooked up and not being able to get it out of there. So most of the time I'm floating and I have clients fishing from a floating boat, nymphing out of the boat at the same time. So they're nymph. So basically they have the indicator on you're drifting down or, or like you're doing, you're stopping holding the boat while they're fishing. And it's just, what are the, what's the tips there? Like as you're fishing, you just kind of cast upstream and drift down. How do you know what length to get the leader at? Are you always adjusting the indicator as you go? Um, not necessarily adjusting the indicator, but I try to be very methodical in adjusting the weight and I may adjust in which, I mean, 
you can argue this of am I adjusting the indicator or not. I may lengthen the leader, but mm. I'm still going to leave the indicator. I want the indicator to be more than a foot to a foot and a half away from the end of the fly line because there needs to be some distance there for bending so that you're not moving the indicator. And then the distance from the indicator down to the split shot or the first fly, that can be adjusted a little bit and certainly the weight. And so if I'm floating, I'm not going to have on nearly as much weight as when I'm stopped. And when I'm stopped, I'm usually going to add a little bit more weight to the line. And most of the time, my split shot is above that top fly so that we can get everything to get down just a little bit faster. But I'm very methodical in changing things. I only change one thing at a time. So I'm not going to just cut everything off and totally re-rig because something wasn't working. Instead, I'm going to change one fly or I'm going to change the weight and I'm going to give it two or three drifts, maybe in the same type of water, maybe in the same water if we're stopped. And so we're floating down the Madison, we're catching fish while we're floating. I stop the boat and say, hey, I want to fish this hole or this run right here. And a client using the tension cast or loading the line off of the water, kind of a modified roll cast casts upstream, big mend, another small mend, everything floats through there. Nothing happens. I don't see any ticks. Nothing moves on the indicator. We do that two or three times. Nothing happens. And I say, okay, hold on, bring that in. I know those flies were just working while we we're floating because the flies were down and we were moving and they had longer drifts. Let me add a little bit more weight, you know, add a little bit more weight. Something changes, something doesn't change. Very rarely do I have both clients fishing the same fly because I feel like you don't have anything to go on from one to the next if something doesn't stop working. But again, I'm only going to change one thing at a time. So I'm a bit scientific about that of trying to figure out what's working and what's working with that person's style. You know, sometimes people have their own style, if you will, of casting and fishing, and I need to make sure I can work with that. Yeah, that's a great tip too. So just be yeah, systematic about it so you can figure out what's working. And do you find throughout the, you know, the day, the during the week that things change quite a bit? Or do you find a pattern, say, if they're on the yellow sally, that thing probably is going to work the next day if it worked the day before? Ooh, uh, I think our weather has a lot to do with it. Um, right now it's early August and we have a very strange cold wet front through here where it's been raining and we haven't even hit 70 degrees for a couple of days. Oh, wow. So it's cool out there. It is. It's very weird. Huh. Um, I've seen it before. It's happened in previous years. It's been a long year, a lot of years. But yeah, it's pretty chilly right now. Yesterday, I saw betas coming off the first week of August. Yeah. You know, we are still seeing PMDs. We're still seeing some other mayflies, We're occasional yellow sallies, plenty of caddis. But betas poured off the river yesterday with the weather. So I think sometimes you can't predict what's going to happen, yeah, Right, <laughs> you know? And, um, I think a lot of the insects just having an idea of insect hatches and the succession of the stages of a bug are very helpful in your day-to-day -day fishing. I mean, that probably applies to anywhere, mm -hmm. but certainly coming to the Madison and you know, say we're talking about salmon flies and people show up and they're like, I don't see any salmon flies. And it's like, relax. <laughs> yeah. You will, you know, they will fly at some point. They will crawl at some point during the day. You just need to be paying attention to what's going on and, and not just assume because you don't see any that you shouldn't be fishing them. That's right. You know, and that's true with other bugs. 
you know, folks will show up and they're like, God, oh, you think we're going to get a hatch today? And I'm turning around and I look at them and I'm like, did you look up? Yeah. You know, like there's a cloud of caddis right there that are mating. You know, what do you think is going to happen with those caddis in a few hours when that's all said and done and they come back to the water to lay eggs, you know? So it's not just about the hatch. It's about all the other stages of insects. And I think some of that basic knowledge can be super applicable when you're fishing new water. Yeah. So if you don't have that basic knowledge and you want to learn about the bugs, the insects, the hatches of a particular, let's say the the Madison or any river, where where do you start? I know there's a lot of resources online, but where would you direct somebody to learn about like, okay, these are the hatches throughout the year? Well, there's a number of hatch charts out there that are associated with people's fishing reports. You know, it's that text box and it's got these are the bugs you might see during certain months of the year those are helpful there's books about those and certainly resources online yeah. i think some of the general knowledge about insects there are sometimes classes that are taught at fly shops that even if it's your local fly shop in salt lake city that's going to give you some information some basic knowledge about bugs or even a fly shop in pennsylvania because going to give you some information about bugs if they teach an entomology class or have somebody special come in. Dave Whitlock's book on trout foods, I think, is just this gold standard. That's what instructors use. That's what people are asking about. That's the charts that you see. That's going to give you a great knowledge about the three main insects, caddisflies, mayflies, stoneflies, and what do their life cycles look like. Yeah, that's great. We'll put a link to that book in the show notes to make sure we can take a look at that. So, well, let's talk about that on the hatches on the Madison. We've talked about this down on some other rivers not too far away, the Henry's Fork and things like that. So some of this will be overlapping, but I'm just curious as we think like now kind of summer, like, you know, it is in a typical year, July, August, September, what are the hatches that you're thinking about, the the big hatches there on the Madison? We've had certainly salmon flies and golden stones, yellow sallies. And we do see some green drakes on the Madison, despite what some folks say. It's not as famous as the Henry's Fork by any means. Um, but there are green drakes on the Madison. We have PMDs, Epioris, um, a number of other subspecies of PMDs that you might see. And caddis, I think the Madison is most well known for its caddis hatches. And that's what have people out on the river at different times of the day. They're more than likely going to put on a caddis, whether it's a nymph or not a nymph. Uh, Caddis larvae, or if they're even fishing dry flies morning or evening, if they see fish rising, most folks I feel like are going to say, oh, they must be eating a caddis. So quite a bit of caddis fishing. And then we do get some other stoneflies. And then you get into mayflies in September um, and then caddis again occasionally in October. But the mayflies in September, we can see mahoganies and then blue-winged olives are probably the primary hatch in the fall once our weather changes or like right now when you get a random cool weather spell in August. In August, right, right. How was the the salmon fly hatch this year? Was that I know you had some high water out there, right? We did. Yeah, we had a, a close to 180% snowpack in this region and so our water flows this year were not conducive to, in my opinion, having a phenomenal salmon fly hatch. Yes, we had salmon flies. Yes, we fished them. It was not like it has been in some previous years. And by no means is it necessarily better when we have low water. It's just they had to move water down the Madison this year. And unfortunately, it was around the time when those bugs were, in my opinion, starting to hatch. So some sections of the Madison had better salmon fly fishing than others. Golden stones were okay. 
And then we've had consistent water now, which has definitely helped with some of those other smaller bugs. But salmon flies are also cyclical. You know, they stay underwater for three to five years. So you're not going to always have a phenomenal hatch. And I've had a client who had a really good day on say June 22nd. And he said, I want to have June 22nd booked for the rest of my life. I always want to come back on June 22nd. I'm like, oh man, if you look back to June 22nd, well, the last two June 22nds, we've had frost in the morning and it's been 20 something degrees. And then the Madison's high and off color because snow is melting and all the streams are bringing in snow melt and the main Madison, they don't have a ton of water coming down the dam because of all the small streams bringing in so much water and the water's high. It's like, well, June 22nd, we were at that point 10 days away from seeing a salmon fly. So it's very cyclical and it definitely depends on our water flow and, and what happens with snow melt. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Salmon fly. Well, and I want to, you know, the, the river itself, let's go to that really quick, just to give us a general primer on the Madison. We talked about the dams and some of that stuff. Can you give us a little, uh, high level, you know, like 30,000 foot view of the Madison? Where does it start? Where are people fishing? And then talk about that. How's it goes through the park and all that? Sure. The Madison officially starts at Madison Junction, which is 14 miles from West Yellowstone in Yellowstone National Park. And it is the confluence of the Gibbon and the Firehole Rivers. And the Firehole starts as a cold mountain stream up on the Continental Divide, gains all of its heat and volume coming down through the geyser basins. The Gibbon River starts at higher elevation through a series of lakes and other small streams coming together and then joins the Firehole there at Madison Junction. So the Madison flows 14 miles from the junction to the park gate, and then it flows through a series of willow-lined beaver meadows, as they're called, until it flows down into Hebgen Lake. And the Madison continues below Hebgen Dam and through Earthquake Lake, and then that's when you get into the 50, 60 miles of the Madison Valley beginning or the 50-mile riffle as it flows down towards Ennis through Ennis Lake. Then I don't know the exact mileage of Ennis Dam all the way to the confluence, but it joins the Jefferson and the Gallatin in Three Forks, Montana, and becomes the Missouri. Mm. So the Madison has an enormous variety of characteristics from its headwaters all the way to the confluence with the Missouri. It's a huge river, really. What is the mileage of the sections that the floating, the spots that you're, most people are like using the drift boats on? How, how many miles are there? Of floating sections in the middle? Yeah, here, like that, yeah. Yeah, that's roughly in the 40 to 50 mile range. Most people are doing six to eight or 10 mile float. You know, 12 mile float's not unusual, especially if the water's a little bit higher or say you're fishing large dry flies all day. So maybe if you're fishing salmon flies or hoppers, it's not unusual to do a 12 mile float. Yeah. 12 mile float. And, um, describe the Riverside anglers, like what you have going there to your program. Just give us a little, you know, if somebody wanted to connect with you, what are they going to see at your website? Um, you know, if they want to get a trip, talk about that a little bit. I guide wade and float trips on the Madison river and wade trips in Yellowstone national park. I teach a women's fly fishing school in June. I'm also an instructor with the Anglers Academy, which I believe you have reviewed in the past. Yeah. You've had John Hudgens on. Oh, yeah. So I saw a lot of instruction opportunities, but guiding through the season in Yellowstone or on the Madison. And my guiding 
in the park could be any direction in the park. So I do not just guide the west side of the park because, as I mentioned, the fire hole has a lot of influence from thermal activity and the gibbon a little bit too. So the fire hole gibbon and Madison fish great in the beginning and the end of our fishing season, but in the middle of the season, that water's too warm. Those fish have mostly gone out into Hebgen Lake. And so we're fishing other parts of the park. So I do fish all around Yellowstone National Park, lakes and rivers, and then certainly on the Madison. I occasionally guide some other rivers. I've guided on the Yellowstone, the Big Hole, the Beaverhead, the Ruby. So a few other small streams or larger rivers in Montana for short periods of time. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and then what is that, the women's school? Talk about that a little bit. Is this mostly you know new to fly fishing sort of thing? Describe what you cover at your school. It's three days and it's an all-inclusive school. And the intention is that a woman may have been exposed to fly fishing through a local club, a one-on-one class at a fly shop. They've been on a few guide trips. Somebody has exposed them to fly fishing. So I do have folks that do one-on-one. I have done a custom one-on-one for folks, but really my intention was to help women become more independent anglers. So they maybe have equipment and they don't want to rely on somebody else to tie on their fly or to always be telling them what they're supposed to be doing when they get to the river. And the hope is that at the end of that, they can say, I know how to rig up my own nymphs. I know how to put on my own leader. I have an idea of where I should be standing to read water to figure this out. So we go over, we get everybody hopefully in the same page on casting, knots, entomology, fly selection, and then we go out and experience it. And I do a lot of coaching on the water with the gals. So I'm going to have them rig up all their stuff. I'm not I will help when necessary, but it is not a guide trip where I'm going to put on your leader and tie on your flies and do everything. You're going to do it. And we're going to talk about why you rig it up the way you do and, and all of that, but then also give them the opportunity to experience different types of fishing. So I try to do it in early June when we have a variety around West Yellowstone that's easily accessible. So we can go nymph fishing, we can dry fly fish, we can swing wet flies, we can throw streamers, and they can experience what that's like. And I have all of the equipment rigged up so somebody can try my Winston streamer rod. Somebody can try my light nine foot four weight or eight foot four weight dry fly rod. Somebody can try different things so that they have that opportunity to experience it. And then maybe that gives them some confidence to try something new, or at least they can participate in the conversation. If somebody says, Hey, do you want to go do this? And they can say, well, I've done that before. I've tried it. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. That sounds like a great, uh, a great school. And you mentioned reading water. So if we're back to the, you know, back to the Madison, how do you just help somebody with the reading of the water? Because you talk about, you know, structures and things like that. If somebody's again, kind of in newer to the Madison or any river, what's your tip there on reading water? Trout like, you know, they have three basic needs, cold oxygenated water protection from predators and sitting in a location where they can gain more calories than it takes to sit there. So they have to have those transition zones where they can sit in that slow water potentially and eat out of the fast water, the conveyor belt, the bubble line that's bringing them food. And the Madison has a lot of those bubble lines. And I think folks are a little overwhelmed at times when they look at the river and they, if there's not a bunch of rocks or obvious riffles and drop-offs and they don't go, I don't know, where are the fish going to be? Yeah. I'm like, well, what do they need? You know, they need those conveyor belts of food. So they're going to sit in a position where they can eat out of those. And so looking at if you do have structure, 
a rock is going to break that current. It's going to give you a long slick, nice seams, nice bubble lines downstream of it. You've got a trough of deep water on either side of the big rock. You know, there's a, a big rock can be obvious, but then the smaller rocks, the riffles, the drop-offs, the gravel bars, places where there's a spot for a fish to sit down low, but then can move and eat. Those are going to be key locations to look for fish. And so when you're floating down the river, you're basically getting them in position and just uh, as you're guiding, you're saying, hey, okay, we're coming up to this seam, you know, toss it there. And are people just kind of drifting as they float and then not casting as much or or talk about that a little bit? I try to identify some of that water in the very beginning. So I, you know, I go over boat safety when I first get folks in the drift boat and then I pull over and I start pointing out the water we're looking for and how that's going to change a little bit and where we're going to fish along the bank and where we might fish in the middle and what that water looks like so that folks are casting to it. But I'm also telling them, listen, that's the water that I want your flies to be in, but it means I need them drag free when they get to that water. So it's not casting directly into it. It's casting upstream of it, getting that mend in there or that reach cast so that your fly is drag free as it goes through that ideal location. So I would say they're definitely casting. and longer drifts when we're moving, but they're going to be needing to cast in order to set that fly up to drift into that water. Today's episode is sponsored by Stonefly Nets, putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. Charleston, South Carolina native Ethan Eigelhart was bitten by the fly fishing bug in 2014 and shortly thereafter started Stonefly Nets. He now lives in the trout-rich waters of the Ozarks and handcrafts some of the sweetest wooden landing nets you'll see. I've been using these stonefly nets for quite a while now, and I'm excited to dig into another year. Ethan builds these nets custom, and you can select from four sizes and many different wood options. For Ethan, fly fishing is a memory created from a morning on a beautiful stretch of water casting a three-weight bamboo rod that his grandmother gave to his father, and then he passed to Ethan. Ethan is helping us create the same types of lasting memories every time we're on the water with these classic custom wood nets. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com stonefly to check out your custom net right now. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to stonefly. Okay, back to the show. On your split shot, talk about the split shot you're using, typical sizes, and how you're, where, how far up on the leader, how you're putting on the leader. I use the Loon camo drops, and I typically am using fours, Bs, or BBs. Just depends on the time of year and and what that combination is that I need in there um, for weight. And when I set up a nymph rig, when I put the weight on above that top fly, my goal is that I've not created a hinge point with the fly that's the top fly. So I don't want the lower fly to be able to hook on the split shot or the split shot to get hung up on one of the flies. So if I put the two flies, say, 16 inches apart, then the split shot that's going to go above the top fly, that's potentially going to be in that like eight, six to eight inches above that. You know, I can, I'm going to adjust that a little bit. There's times when it might be four inches above there, but I'm going to put it above that top fly and just, like I said, not allow it to be a hinge point in there. And then I'm going to adjust if I'm going to add, if I put on a B, am I going to add a second B 
or do I know I only need to add a four? You know, depends on the time of year, flow of water, size of flies I'm fishing. Sometimes in the year I'm going to fish tungsten bead heads. Most of the time I might be fishing more, you know, brass bead heads so that I'm, I have some more flexibility. Yeah. And the hinge thing you're saying, basically, if you put the split shot too far above your fly, it's going to create a hinge and versus like putting it closer to the fly. So you won't get much of a hinge. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want the, um, if the flies are say 16 inches apart, I don't want the split shot to be 16 inches above the top fly. I want it to be offset a little bit so that there's no hinge opportunity in there. And I also feel like the split shot, I personally have them a little closer to the fly. So they're getting down faster. Yeah. Perfect. Nice. And and so let's uh, touch on just dry flies real quick on that. So uh, what does that look like for dries? Is it a leader length? Um, are you using two flies out there as well? And I guess let's think now, right. You know, the hatches, we talk caddis. Let's say, let's think how you're doing the caddis. How would you be fishing? What flies and what's your setup look like? Most of the time I have a single fly on with all the bubble lines and seams in the Madison. If I've got two dry flies on, one is almost always going to be dragging. Now, if I'm trying to imitate a stage of the insect that is not as visible, you know, if I think they're eating some sort of an emerging insect or one of the small cripples, then I may put that below a dry fly we can see. Hmm. And there's other times, certainly with terrestrials that uh, say an ant pattern may not be as visible that I'm going to put that behind something we can see. But with caddis, I'm going to fish those single, usually on 4X. I might have on a nine foot 4X leader and then add a section of 4X to that and then put the fly on. And um, I may just run the leader as is, kind of depending on the size of the fly and other factors like air displacement on the Madison. Hmm. <laughs> superstitious fishing guides that don't like to say the word wind, but I'm Oh, inside. right. Air I'm displacement. Safe. Gotcha. I'm safe right now. On the bad acid, how often can it get windy? Is it like a 50-50 any day? Oh, I would say 95% of our days, it seems like it's windy. Oh, wow. So you do. You get a lot of wind out there. Yeah, we definitely get some. Yeah. It may not be 35 miles an hour all the time, but we have some prevailing winds. But it can, can it, how can it really blow? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. Brutal. Yeah. We can have some days that make you feel like your arms are a lot longer and question your choice of. Oh, wow. Like it's blowing you. It's making uh, rowing the boat kind of hard. Yes, definitely. Those are days when everybody needs to be sitting down. And uh, my focus is definitely trying to get the boat down the river safely. And yes, you're going to be casting, but we're going to make sure that we don't run into anything. Yeah. You're going to be nymphing on those days. Uh, Not necessarily. No. Because no, having. Two flies, split shot, and a strike indicator in that oh, sometimes right. is recipe for disaster. And it can get tangled more often than not. Um, it depends on the time of year. That can be super effective for blowing terrestrials into the water. So sometimes fishing a giant dry fly is awesome. Light fish a dropper below that dry fly if that's going to be effective. Uh, those are also days that I, this, some people are going to duck when I say this, when I, we might throw streamers, you know, that might be the day that we're going to just want to have something weighted on. That's going to stay in the water that I can make sure is getting to where it needs to go. So there have been those days where we didn't start out throwing streamers, but by the end of the day, I was like, let's put on a streamer and I want you to fish it, you know, intentionally in these spots, get it in there, move it get it out, cast it back in the water and the less amount of casting and less stuff in the air might be the safest. 
Good. Okay. So that's dry. And we're not going to get into all the hatches, but you know, as you get through the summer into the fall, when, when does the, I mean, are you fishing the, when are you not fishing the Madison river during the year? <laughs> I guide to some point into October, a little bit depends on our weather and, um, folks interest in the weather and the fishing that we have going on in October. Some years, October is beautiful. Some years, October is the beginning of winter and it's going to stick around and nobody wants to be in a drift boat for eight hours, um, in that. So sometime in October it's done. And that's when I'm going to, um, I've already got two redfish trips booked to Louisiana, hosted trips down there. Kind of nice to go do that for a little bit. Uh, certainly some bird hunting and fishing on my own and getting out steelhead fishing at some point. And then maybe saltwater fishing. Um, in the spring, I will sometime in April is usually when I have my first trip and that might be floating again. It's very weather dependent. I have been on the Madison in April and May, and I would assumed I was the only guide or boat out there because it was a snowstorm and a whiteout and I couldn't see anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> some days those happen in the spring, some days it's some years it's 70 degrees in the beginning of May and it's not snowing. So sometime in the spring, April, May, that's when we'll start to fish. And then it really just depends on our snowpack and what the Madison is looking like. But June, July, August, September, those are the main months of my guide season. Okay. And and just back quickly, I just, you know, as far as the dry flies and, and the water, are you again, reading the water, are you fishing some of those same seams with say caddis out there or what, what are you looking for? Like with the dry flies, is it different types of water you're hitting or is it the same? I'm looking for that area where the water is slowing down and then there's that bubble line or a little bit faster water going by it, but it also may be a drop off from the bank of it's going from shallow to deep. And so those bubble lines, those transition zones, that's where the fish are hanging out. They're expecting to see some of those bugs that might be where they're emerging from, especially in the riffles and coming off of the rocks. But the places where a fish can sit kind of hiding and then be able to eat out of that. And in the Madison, that's the beauty of it in a sense is that's not always on the bank and it's not always around structure. Sometimes it's the middle of the river. There's enough bubble lines and, and seams that I've had, especially even recently, had fish rising out in the middle of the river because that's where the bugs were and they felt perfectly comfortable being out there. Yeah, okay. This is good. So I And, and we haven't talked much about the you know, fish in the park, uh, maybe we'll save that for a, another time to go, go in deep there, but are the hatches and everything is it a little bit different than the kind of the drift boat fishing you're doing or like, is, it, is there a lot of similarities on when you're up in the park? You know, the beauty of Yellowstone National Park is the elevation change. And so oh. there's an enormous variety of water and at different elevations. And so you can experience hatches in other places. And I was recently, not that long ago, fishing green drakes and PMDs in the Madis or in the park. And those are certainly over on the Madison weeks ago, you know. And so that elevation change buys you a lot in Yellowstone National Park, which I think is awesome. I love having it in my backyard. Yeah, it's amazing. We're hoping to get back out out there for sure. And well, let's take it out of here uh, with our we got our listener shout out uh, segment here, and uh, and we've got. Uh, uh, Janelle Mullen, who uh, had an email that came in to us. And this is, uh, I've, I've got a couple of quick random questions for you. You might not have the answer to this, but Janelle, I'm just going to read what she said. She said, one of the things that uh, she would really love to hear more on the podcast are about prepping and cooking game or fish. 
what equipment people use for smoking salmon, what is the best technique preparing game or uh, for recipes. So I guess let's start there. Are you a big cook? Do you have, you know, is fish something on your on your plate? Do you enjoy eating fish? Do you have any tips for Janelle? Uh, well, I do cook and so does my husband. He loves grilling. We actually have five grills on our back deck at None of them are all in working order at oh, wow. the same time. <laughs> five, so I was gonna say five grills is amazing. So this is like uh, sounds like what yeah. we have going. It's a struggle to get a good grill, right? Well, also he just loves the variety. So the big green egg is probably his favorite. So we do smoke on that and grill off of it too. And um, we have eaten our fair share of hatchery steelhead when given the opportunity. So definitely like kind of the cedar plank technique and you know, soaking those cedar planks, coating the salmon with say, you know, brown sugar and mustard and oh, nice. doing that, which I feel like is a, a common preparation. But we've also taken the cast iron skillet out and put it on the big green egg and done blackened fish and to make fish tacos. Um, I went out with girlfriends for a few years and we trolled on Yellowstone Lake on a guided trip and brought back a bunch of lake trout because those are threatening the native Yellowstone cutthroat. And then we brought back lake trout, blackened them on the skillet, and then made fish tacos and had a party and everybody ate lake trout. But that was really good. As far as game goes for the birds, since we do a fair bit of bird hunting, it's definitely in a sense kind of a smoking technique of, you know, not really, you don't want to overcook it. You know, you need to cook the birds, but if you overcook them and they get so dried out and tough. And I think that mm, um, right. kind of a- This is like upland, upland game? Yes. You know, a lower, slower technique. What do you got? Like Chuck Partridge or what is the upland? Um, yeah. Chuckers are a little farther away for us. It's mostly grouse. So it could be sharp tails, blues or roughed grouse, the occasional pheasants. If we travel from here. That's good. Awesome. Well, this is good. Well, this, uh, listener shout out was presented by anglers coffee. So that's always, uh, we're going to give uh, Janelle a, a bag of anglers coffee as we go, as we go here. Um, but what's your drink of choice? So we're in the AM. Are you a big coffee drinker? What, what's getting you started in the day? Um, chai is actually my choice. So spicy black tea and, um, some almond milk and I prefer maple syrup over honey, but either will work in a pinch. In the summer, if it were a little hotter, I don't mind a iced latte. So occasionally I'll have some some coffee, but definitely more of a chai fan. Chai, yeah, I love chai. That's great. Uh, so what is so we talked a little about nipping, a little about dries. What is you know one tip somebody take away? They're they're again they're thinking the Madison. They're on the river. Maybe they're struggling to get that fish. What's a general you know fishing tip you might give somebody? Pay attention to your tippet and your leader setup. And so I have had, and this goes both directions. I was walking the bank and ran into a former client who was fishing in an area and he was running down the bank. And I was like, what are you doing, man? You look like you need help. You don't have a net. And he had a big fish on and it was just pulling him down the bank. And I told my clients, I was like, sorry, I know you paid for my services today, but I've got to go help this guy because he's just tearing up this bank right here. So I run down there and net his fish. And I'm like, what's going on, man? And he's like, oh, I had 5X on. And I'm like, 5X? <sighs> to your stonefly nymph while you're nymphing on the Madison? You're crazy. And he's like, yeah, this is a really big fish. I'm like, yeah, it is, but it's irresponsible. You know, probably you're going to break that guy off if I hadn't shown up with the net or somebody else hadn't come help you. And or just taken forever to bring the fish in. So on the other side of that is when... 
I'm fishing dry flies. Say I've got a fish that's rising. There's bugs coming down. We're wade fishing or we're stopped on the bank. There's a fish rising. We're watching this fish come up. We're trying to time our next cast. We're not frothing the water. We're waiting to make one cast that's hopefully going to catch this fish. We make the cast draft. You know, it's not dragging. The drift looks good. Everything's awesome. Fish doesn't eat it. I bring it in. I don't let him cast over it again. I might have confidence in that fly that it's going to work, but I tied it on 4X because I tried to get away with the thickest tippet possible. Fish didn't want to eat it. I said, bring it in, tie, cut it off, put on a section of 5X. Then we get the fish on the next one. So sometimes it's not changing the fly. It's changing the tippet and then just going down one. But I'm not going to always fish 5X because it's not necessarily responsible. It's going to take forever. It's going to break fish off on the Madison. You've got some structure to deal with you know, larger fish, you've got current, they're fighting against the current. So the guy with the stonefly nymph who was nymphing, you're crazy. You should have been on three X. Three oh three X. Big 3X stuff. Yeah. Nymphing. Yes, absolutely. Nymph with three X. Occasionally use four X depending on our water level. And then dry fly fishing, I'm gonna use four X most of the time, except for some of the bigger flies, then I'm gonna want three X so it turns over. But if I'm stopped and working on a fish, I might tie on a section of five X so I can get that fish because the water's slower and the fish has a little bit more time to see the fly. Gotcha. And what about, what about, uh, floral versus mono? Do you have a preference there? Uh, <laughs> another debate. That, 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 <laughs> that is a big one. No, there's lots of conversation about that. And I have fishing guys are like, why not? You know, we I can't believe you don't. So most of the time, well, I'd say I use monofilament leaders all the time. And occasionally I use some, fluorocarbon tippet, but not all the time. It is not a standard thing that I tie on. If I'm Euro nymphing, I'll use it in places. I may also use it with nymphs uh, as a dropper. I'll use some fluoro, but from an environmental standpoint, I'm not a huge fan. And I understand the advantages of it and the significance of, you know, using it in certain scenarios, but it's not a standard thing for me. Yeah. Okay. And just take us out of here with, maybe we can hit a little conservation you know, I know there's a lot going on in Montana and there's even steelhead. I mean, lots of numbers, fish numbers going down and things like that. What's the, you want to give us maybe one issue to be thinking about and maybe a group that we can look into checking in and supporting uh, that's out there hot in your mind? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give a shout out to the Fishing Outfitters Association of Montana and their guiding for the future program, because this is kind of a next level um, conservation focused training program for fishing guides for all over the country. It's both in Montana and they recently ran one in Maine and they're looking at saltwater applications and we have a lot of threats to our fisheries and we have, you know, every year it's something like I say, I didn't expect to experience this giant geologic event of a flood. I didn't think I would ever see hoot owl on the upper Madison, which I've now seen once. And that was really a displacement issue because the rest of Montana was on Hoodal and everybody would have been fishing Madison. But we have had um, Hoodal ne necessary on lower sections of the Madison because that water has hit over 68 degrees for a number of days in a row. We've seen it in the park. And so I think paying attention to where we're fishing and when we're fishing and trying to fish colder water, trying to fish times of the day when it's less stressful for the fish. And just paying attention to how you handle your fish. There are days where I'll tell my clients, listen, I get it. This is your big day. This is your once in a lifetime trip to this area. I want you to record those memories. 
but after lunch, we're probably not going to catch a fish that we're going to, or we're probably not going to take a picture of a fish that we've caught, you know, and if we are going to take pictures of those fish, you might need to get out of the boat or you're going to need to kneel down so that that fish stays in the water. I'll get a great photo of the fish. We all have high quality cameras now on our cell phones. I can get some great photos of that fish and I can record this whole moment, but you don't need to hold it up out of the water, No, you know? And so we can do a few of those occasionally, but we're going to try to be really mindful of keeping that fish wet, you know, minimize the handling. I like to recover the fish almost before we take any pictures of it. So I keep the fish in the net. I keep the net in the water. The fish has already righted itself. It's finning. Its gills are moving. The gill plates are moving back and forth. The fish is looking healthy. It's looking like it's swimming. It's doing okay. Quick snap of that picture back in the water. Then I put the fish as close to the bank as possible or under structure or somewhere where it can recover without getting dinged by an eagle or an osprey. And then hopefully it's going to go back up to its spot. I'm not just dropping them out of the side of the boat on a warm, sunny day after I've lifted the net out of the water, unhooked the fish, kept it out of the water for who knows how many seconds and then dropped it in the water. I see that frequently and it's frustrating. Right. And then it floats. Yeah, that's the worst. Is, yeah, it float, it's floating away half upside down and that thing's toast probably. Um, yes. what, what's your net? Do you have a type of brand or net you like to use or you see commonly? I'm using the, I'm using the rubber, um, net bag and both my boat net and my walkway net are the fish pond nomad nets. Yep. Perfect. Awesome. Well, I think that, um, you know, on all these episodes, I loved, uh, I would love to dig in more to this. I think, um, I think we have a good primer on the Madison. It's one that I think, um, I, I hope to get out there. I don't want to add too much more pressure to the river, but you know, do you, do you feel like the river still has room for a few new people to come out there and check it out? I definitely do. Folks who appreciate fishing and the beauty of our area and the variety of fishing opportunities we have on the Madison, I think it does. You just might need to be creative, you know, uh, might, like you said, mean walking a little further or just changing the time of day a little bit or, uh, making some new friends. Yeah. Perfect. All right, Alice. Well, I, I appreciate the time today. Uh, RiversideAnglers.com uh, is where we can send people if they want to grab a trip or get some information from you. And, uh, and, and I guess maybe I wanted to ask too, um, uh, as far as your guide program, do you have a few, uh, other guides working with you on your program or are you the focus here? I occasionally do have other fishing guides working for me. Um, at the moment, they're all male, and um, I fished with all of them and, and certainly wouldn't send them out with anyone if I hadn't. And I will say I'm hiring. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there's a young woman out there who is interested in getting to know this area and guiding in Yellowstone National Park and on the Madison and wants to give me a call and chat about a future as a fishing guide. Send me a message. Text me. There you go. There's a great opportunity. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link, uh, like I said, to your website and everything else in the show notes. And yeah, thanks for all your time, Alice. And we'll uh, look forward to keeping in touch with you. Sounds good, Dave. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the Wet Fly Swing podcast. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country, so if you want to connect, let's do it right now. 
All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.